One of the very first cases argued before the court this term was National Pork Producers Council v. Ross. The question before the Supreme Court in this case was whether California's law prohibiting the in-state sale of pork from animals confined in a manner inconsistent with California's standards violates the Constitution's dormant commerce clause, and whether a claim can be stated under Pike v. Bruce Church, Inc. from 2004, an opinion I just so happened to read on May 8th in anticipation of the court's decision in this case, if you're interested in listening to it later. But right now, I give you the May 11th opinion of the court in National Pork Producers Council v. Ross. Enjoy. Justice Gorsuch announced the judgment of the court and delivered the opinion of the court with respect to parts 1, 2, 3, 4a, and 5, in which Justices Thomas, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Barrett joined. An opinion with respect to parts 4b and 4d, in which Justices Thomas and Barrett joined, and an opinion with respect to Part 4C, in which Justices Thomas, Sotomayor, and Kagan joined. Justice Sotomayor filed an opinion concurring in part, in which Justice Kagan joined. Justice Barrett filed an opinion concurring in part. Chief Justice Roberts filed an opinion concurring in part and dissenting in part, in which Justices Alito, Kavanaugh, and Jackson joined. Justice Kavanaugh filed an opinion concurring in part and dissenting in part. What goods belong in our stores? Usually, consumer demand and local laws supply some of the answer. Recently, California adopted just such a law banning the in-state sale of certain pork products derived from breeding pigs confined in stalls so small they cannot lie down, stand up, or turn around. In response, two groups of -of out-of-state pork producers filed this lawsuit, arguing that the law unconstitutionally interferes with their preferred way of doing business, in violation of this court's dormant Commerce Clause precedents. Both the District Court and Court of Appeals dismissed the producer's complaint for failing to state a claim. We affirm. Companies that choose to sell products in various states must normally comply with the laws of those various states. Assuredly, under this court's dormant Commerce Clause decisions, no state may use its laws to discriminate purposefully against out-of-state economic interests. But the pork producers do not suggest that California's law offends this principle. Instead, they invite us to fashion two new and more aggressive constitutional restrictions on the ability of states to regulate goods sold within their borders. 
we decline that invitation. While the Constitution addresses many weighty issues, the type of pork chops California merchants may sell is not on that list. Part 1 Modern American grocery stores offer a dizzying array of choice. Often, consumers may choose among eggs that are large, medium, or small, eggs that are white, brown, or some other color, eggs from cage-free chickens, or ones raised consistent with organic farming standards. When it comes to meat and fish, the options are no less plentiful. Products may be marketed as free-range, wild-caught, or graded by quality, like prime, choice, select, and beyond. The pork products at issue here, too, sometimes come with antibiotic-free and crate-free labels. Much of this product differentiation reflects consumer demand, informed by individual taste, health, or moral considerations. Informed by similar concerns, states and their predecessors have long enacted laws aimed at protecting animal welfare. As far back as 1641, the Massachusetts Bay Colony prohibited tyranny or cruelty towards any brute creature. Today, Massachusetts prohibits the sale of pork products from breeding pigs or their offspring if the breeding pig has been confined in a manner that prevents it from lying down, standing up, fully extending its limbs, or turning around freely. Nor is that state alone. Florida's constitution prohibits any person from confining a pig during pregnancy in such a way that she is prevented from turning around freely. Arizona, Maine, Michigan, Oregon, and Rhode Island, too, have laws regulating animal confinement practices within their borders. This case involves a challenge to a California law known as Proposition 12. In November 2018, and with the support of about 63% of participating voters, California adopted a ballot initiative that revised the state's existing standards for the in-state sale of eggs and announced new standards for the in-state sale of pork and veal products. As relevant here, Proposition 12 forbids the in-state sale of whole pork meat that comes from breeding pigs or their immediate offspring that are confined in a cruel manner. Subject to certain exceptions, the law deems confinement cruel if it prevents a pig from lying down, standing up, fully extending its limbs, or turning around freely. Since Proposition 12's adoption, the state has begun developing proposed regulations that would permit compliance certifications to be issued by non-governmental third parties, many used for myriad programs already. A spirited debate preceded the vote on Proposition 12. 
proponents observed that in some farming operations, pregnant pigs remain encased for 16 weeks in fit-to-size metal crates. These animals may receive their only opportunity for exercise when they are moved to a separate barn to give birth and later returned for another 16 weeks of pregnancy confinement, with the cycle repeating until the pigs are slaughtered. Proponents hoped that Proposition 12 would go a long way toward eliminating pork sourced in this manner from the California marketplace. Proponents also suggested that the law would have health benefits for consumers because packing animals in tiny, filthy cages increases the risk of food poisoning. Opponents pressed their case in strong terms, too. They argued that existing farming practices did a better job of protecting animal welfare and ensuring consumer health than Proposition 12 would. They also warned voters that Proposition 12 would require some farmers and processors to incur new costs, ones that might be passed through to California consumers. Shortly after Proposition 12's adoption, two organizations, the National Pork Producers Council and the American Farm Bureau Federation, collectively petitioners, filed this lawsuit on behalf of their members who raise and process pigs. Petitioners alleged that Proposition 12 violates the U.S. Constitution by impermissibly burdening interstate commerce. They acknowledged that in response to consumer demand and the laws of other states, 28% of their industry has already converted to some form of group housing for pregnant pigs. But, petitioners cautioned, even some farmers who already raise group-housed pigs will have to modify their practices if they wish to comply with Proposition 12. Much of pork production today is vertically integrated, too, with farmers selling pigs to large processing firms that turn them into different cuts of meat and distribute the different parts all over to completely different end-users. Revising this system to segregate and trace Proposition 12-compliant pork, petitioners alleged, will require certain processing firms to make substantial new capital investments. Ultimately, petitioners estimated that compliance with Proposition 12 will increase production costs by 9.2% at the farm level. These compliance costs will fall on California and out-of-state producers alike. But because California imports almost all the pork it consumes, petitioners emphasized, the majority of Proposition 12's compliance costs will be initially borne by out-of-state firms. After considerable motions practice, the district court held that petitioners' complaint failed to state a claim as a matter of law and dismissed the case. With Judge Ikuda writing for a unanimous panel, the Ninth Circuit affirmed. Following that ruling, petitioners sought certiorari and we agreed to consider the complaint's legal sufficiency for ourselves. Part 2 
The Constitution vests Congress with the power to regulate commerce among the several states. Everyone agrees that Congress may seek to exercise this power to regulate the interstate trade of pork, much as it has done with various other products. Everyone agrees, too, that congressional enactments may preempt conflicting state laws. But everyone also agrees that we have nothing like that here. Despite the persistent efforts of certain pork producers, Congress has yet to adopt any statute that might displace Proposition 12 or laws regulating pork production in other states. That has led petitioners to resort to litigation, pinning their hopes on what has come to be called the Dormant Commerce Clause. Reading between the Constitution's lines, petitioners observe, this court has held that the Commerce Clause not only vests Congress with the power to regulate interstate trade, the clause also contains a further negative command, one effectively forbidding the enforcement of certain state economic regulations even when Congress has failed to legislate on the subject. This view of the Commerce Clause developed gradually. In Gibbons v. Ogden, Chief Justice Marshall recognized that the state's constitutionally reserved powers enabled them to regulate commerce in their own jurisdictions in ways sure to have a remote and considerable influence on commerce in other states. By way of example, he cited inspection laws, quarantine laws, and health laws of every description. At the same time, however, Chief Justice Marshall saw great force in the argument that the Commerce Clause might impliedly bar certain types of state economic regulation. Decades later, in Cooley v. Board of Wardens of Port of Philadelphia, XREL, Society for Relief of Distressed Pilots, this court again recognized that the power vested in Congress to regulate interstate commerce leaves the states substantial leeway to adopt their own commercial codes. But once more, the court hinted that the Constitution may come with some restrictions on what may be regulated by the states, even in the absence of all congressional legislation. Eventually, the court cashed out these warnings, holding that state laws offend the Commerce Clause when they seek to build up domestic commerce through burdens upon the industry and business of other states, regardless of whether Congress has spoken. At the same time, though, the court reiterated that, absent discrimination, a state may exclude from its territory or prohibit the sale therein of any articles which, in its judgment, fairly exercised, are prejudicial to the interest of its citizens. Today, this anti-discrimination principle lies at the very core of our dormant Commerce Clause jurisprudence. In its modern cases, this court has said that the Commerce Clause prohibits the enforcement of state laws driven by economic protectionism, that is, regulatory measures designed to benefit in-state economic interests by burdening out-of-state competitors. Admittedly, some members of the court have authored vigorous and thoughtful critiques of this interpretation of the Commerce Clause. They have not necessarily quarreled with the anti-discrimination principle, but they have suggested that it may be more appropriately housed elsewhere in the Constitution. 
perhaps in the Import-Export Clause, which prohibits states from laying any imposts or duties on imports or exports without permission from Congress. Perhaps in the Privileges and Immunities Clause, which entitles the citizens of each state to all privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. Or perhaps the principle inheres in the very structure of the Constitution, which was framed upon the theory that the peoples of the several states must sink or swim together. Whatever one thinks about these critiques, we have no need to engage with any of them to resolve this case. Even under our received Dormant Commerce Clause case law, petitioners begin in a tough spot. They do not allege that California's law seeks to advantage in-state firms or disadvantage out-of-state rivals. In fact, petitioners disavow any discrimination-based claim, conceding that Proposition 12 imposes the same burdens on in-state pork producers that it imposes on out-of-state ones. As petitioners put it, the Dormant Commerce Clause bar on protectionist state statutes that discriminate against interstate commerce is not an issue here. Part 3 Having conceded that California's law does not implicate the anti-discrimination principle at the core of this court's dominant Commerce Clause cases, petitioners are left to pursue two more ambitious theories. In the first, petitioners invoke what they call the extraterritoriality doctrine. They contend that our dormant Commerce Clause cases suggest an additional and almost per se rule forbidding enforcement of state laws that have the practical effect of controlling commerce outside the state, even when those laws do not purposely discriminate against out-of-state economic interests. Petitioners further insist that Proposition 12 offends this almost per se rule because the law will impose substantial new costs on out-of-state pork producers who wish to sell their products in California. Section A. This argument falters out of the gate. Put aside what problems may attend the minor, factual premise of this argument. Focus just on the major, legal premise. Petitioners say the almost per se rule they propose follows ineluctably from three cases. Healy v. Beer Institute, 1989, Brown Foreman Distillers Corp. v. New York State Liquor Authority, 1986, and Baldwin v. G.A.F. Sealing, Inc., 1935. A close look at those cases, however, reveals nothing like the rule petitioners posit. Instead, each typifies the familiar concern with preventing purposeful discrimination against out-of-state economic interests. Start with Baldwin. There, this court refused to enforce New York laws that barred out-of-state dairy farmers from selling their milk in the state unless the price paid to them matched the minimum price New York law guaranteed in-state producers. In that way, the challenged laws deliberately robbed out-of-state dairy farmers of the opportunity to charge lower prices in New York 
thanks to whatever natural competitive advantage they might have enjoyed over in-state dairy farmers. For example, lower cost structures, more productive farming practices, or lusher pasturage. The problem with New York's laws was thus a simple one. They plainly discriminated against out-of-staters by erecting an economic barrier protecting a major local industry against competition from without the state. Really, the laws operated like a tariff or customs duty. Brown, Foreman, and Healy differed from Baldwin only in that they involved price affirmation rather than price-fixing statuses. In Brown, Foreman, New York required liquor distillers to affirm on a monthly basis that their in-state prices were no higher than their out-of-state prices. Once more, the goal was plain. New York sought to force out-of-state distillers to surrender whatever cost advantages they enjoyed against their in-state rivals. Once more, the law amounted to simple economic protectionism. In Healy, a Connecticut law required out-of-state beer merchants to affirm that their in-state prices were no higher than those they charged in neighboring states. Here, too, protectionism took center stage. As the court later noted, the essential vice in laws like Connecticut's is that they hoard commerce for the benefit of in-state merchants and discourage consumers from crossing state lines to make their purchases from nearby out-of-state vendors. Nor did the law in Healy even try to cloak its discriminatory purpose. By its plain terms, the Connecticut Affirmation Statute applied solely to interstate firms and in that way clearly discriminated against interstate commerce. The court also worried that if the Connecticut law stood, each of the border states could enact statutes essentially identical to Connecticut's in retaliation, a result often associated with avowedly protectionist economic policies. Section B. Petitioners insist that our reading of these cases misses the forest for the trees. On their account, Baldwin, Brown Foreman, and Healy didn't just find an impermissible discriminatory purpose in the challenged laws, they also suggested an almost per se rule against state laws with extraterritorial effects. In Healy, petitioners stress, the court included language criticizing New York's laws for having the practical effect of controlling commerce occurring wholly outside the boundaries of the state. In Brown-Forman, petitioners observe, the court suggested that whether a state law is addressed only to in-state sales is irrelevant if the practical effect of the law is to control out-of-state prices. Petitioners point to similar language in Baldwin as well. In our view, however, petitioners read too much into too little. The language of an opinion is not always to be parsed as though we were dealing with language of a statute. Instead, we emphasize, our opinions dispose of concrete cases and controversies, and they must be read with a careful eye to context. And when it comes to Baldwin, Brown Foreman, and Healy, the language petitioners highlight appeared in a particular context and did particular work. 
Throughout, the court explained that the challenge statutes had a specific impermissible extraterritorial effect. They deliberately prevented out-of-state firms from undertaking competitive pricing or deprived businesses and consumers in other states of whatever competitive advantages they may possess. In recognizing this much, we say nothing new. This court has already described the rule that was applied in Baldwin and Healy as addressing price control, or price affirmation statutes, that tied the price of in-state products to out-of-state prices. Many lower courts have read these decisions in exactly the same way. Consider, too, the strange places petitioners' alternative interpretation could lead. In our interconnected national marketplace, many, maybe most, state laws have the practical effect of controlling extraterritorial behavior. State income tax laws lead some individuals and companies to relocate to other jurisdictions. Environmental laws often prove decisive when businesses choose where to manufacture their goods. Add to the extraterritorial effects list all manner of libel laws, securities requirements, charitable registration requirements, franchise laws, tort laws, and plenty else besides. Nor, as we have seen, is this a recent development. Since the founding, states have enacted an immense mass of inspection laws, quarantine laws, and health laws of every description that have a considerable influence on commerce outside their borders. Petitioners' almost per se rule against laws that have the practical effect of controlling extraterritorial commerce would cast a shadow over laws long understood to represent valid exercises of the state's constitutionally reserved powers. It would provide neither courts nor litigants with meaningful guidance in how to resolve disputes over them. Instead, it would invite endless litigation and inconsistent results. Can anyone really suppose Baldwin, Brown Foreman, and Healy meant to do so much? In rejecting petitioners' almost per se theory, we do not mean to trivialize the role territory and sovereign boundaries play in our federal system. Certainly, the Constitution takes great care to provide rules for fixing and changing state borders. Doubtless, too, courts must sometimes referee disputes about where one state's authority ends and another begins, both inside and outside the commercial context. In carrying out that task, this court has recognized the usual legislative power of a state to act upon persons and property within the limits of its own territory, a feature of our constitutional order that allows different communities to live with different local standards. But by way of example, no one should think that one state may adopt a law exempting securities held by the residents of a second state from taxation in that second state. Nor, we have held, should anyone think one state may prosecute the citizen of another state for acts committed outside the first state's jurisdiction that are not intended to produce or that do not produce detrimental effects within it. To resolve disputes about the reach of one state's power, this court has long consulted original and historical understandings of the Constitution's structure 
and the principles of sovereignty and comity it embraces. This court has invoked as well a number of the Constitution's express provisions, including the Due Process Clause and the Full Faith and Credit Clause. The anti-discrimination principle found in our dormant Commerce Clause cases may well represent one more effort to mediate competing claims of sovereign authority under our horizontal separation of powers. But none of this means, as petitioners suppose, that any question about the ability of a state to project its power extraterritorially must yield to an almost per se rule under the Dormant Commerce Clause. This court has never before claimed so much ground for judicial supremacy under the banner of the Dormant Commerce Clause. We see no reason to change course now. We've come to the end of the first half of this opinion, but don't worry, next episode we will start right where this episode left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.